police as Governor George Wallace appeals for calm and prepares to confront a deputy U.S. attorney. The federal officers are armed with a proclamation from President Kennedy urging the governor to end his efforts to prevent two Negro students from registering at the university. The governor is adamant. He made a campaign promise to stand in the doorway himself to prevent the integration of the last all-white state university. After the federal officers leave, there's a lull of several hours while President Kennedy federalizes the Alabama National Guard and they move to the campus. Brigadier General Henry Graham arrives to tell the governor, it's my sad duty to ask you to step aside on orders of the President of the United States. The governor yields to federal authority, but promises to continue what he terms a constitutional fight. There was no untoward incident at any time during this confrontation of state and federal authority. Five minutes after the governor leaves, James Hood is the first of his race to become a University of Alabama student. He is followed into the registrar's office by Vivian Malone. Both the students are 20 years old and will take summer courses. From the White House that evening, President Kennedy makes an appeal to the nation. He says that the U.S. is facing a moral crisis and that it is the duty of all to uphold the law. Fires of frustration and discord are burning in every city, north and south, where legal remedies are not at hand. Redress is sought in the streets, in demonstrations, parades, and protests which create tensions and threaten violence and threaten lives. We face, therefore, a moral crisis as a country and a people. We have a right to expect that the Negro community will be responsible, will uphold the law, but they have a right to expect that the law will be fair, that the Constitution will be colorblind, as Justice Harlan said at the turn of the century. This is what we're talking about, and this is a matter which concerns this country and what it stands for, and in meeting it, I ask the support of all of our citizens. Thank you very much. Welcome, everyone. Welcome back to another great episode of the Act Protect Engage Ape Academy podcast. I'm your host, the handsome, intelligent <laughs> Chase H. Happy you could join me to listen and finish up our series about the Confederate flag and its symbolism and how it changed throughout time. Now, this won't be necessarily the last time we're going to discuss this subject because, guess what? Tomorrow is the first day of Black History Month, and we are going to do a month-long extravaganza um, exploring all aspects of African American history. And, you know, for me, every day is African American history, right? Every day is Black History Month. That makes sense. I live it. I breathe it. I am Black History. So it's my honor to really focus on a amazing, industrious, just bedrock of American civilization, American society. That is the African-American community. I want to thank you once again to all my domestic and international listeners Remember, turn on your post notifications so you know when a new episode has come out. Also, if you can follow us on all social media platforms, that would be amazing. We're going to go over those after we do the intro. I really, once again, appreciate everyone. And uh, I've learned a whole lot, a whole heck of a lot doing this Confederate flag series. I have respect everyone whether you are a confederate uh you know a, a a family member of a confederate veteran uh, just someone who's interested in confederate or civil war history or you know you're against the flag and you want to learn more about it i support everyone i'm here to tell a story god bless y'all hope you enjoyed today's episode eight southern trees Barren, strange fruit Blood on the leaves And blood at the 
We're starting another amazing episode of the Act Protecting Gays podcast. This song is entitled Strange Fruit by Miss Nina Simone. Iconic song. What she's describing is strange fruit. The bodies of African Americans who have been hung, who have been lynched by racist, murderous mobs. This is the story. That she's singing. She's describing what it looks like. And in many areas of the South and surprisingly the Midwest, lynch mobs, racial violence, a lot of times conducted by the Ku Klux Klan, were very, very common, unfortunately. Lynchings, mutilations, beatings, that was a consequence of the pioneers of this fight, this fight for equality, for integration, for voting rights. And this is what we're gonna talk about today. Thank you, Miss Simone. It's an honor to join you. I am Chase once again. All right, so today's episode is entitled The Battle Flag of Segregation. Now, first things first, I wanna make sure everyone knows what segregation is. Uh, I did a bunch of podcasts about the reconstruction era right post-civil war from 1865 to 1877 i had a whole podcast series entitled who is jim crow so we started off talking about the character jim crow how it developed we talked about the jim crow laws the black codes and reconstruction now segregation is the legal separation of the black and the white race these Citizens of the South were pretty much living parallel but separate lives. Two totally different worlds living under the same government, under the same state government. It's unbelievable that something like that happened and and really existed in this country looking at our world today, but it wasn't that long ago. And what I've been trying to do with this Confederate flag series is trace the lineage of segregation and some of the really, really hot button topics that we debate and fight over even today. I chose the Confederate flag because it's such a hotly debated topic and there's opinions on both sides and I really enjoy hearing the opinions of everyone and the feedback from everyone. So if you guys wanna leave a review, I would love to see it. I definitely read all my reviews. Also, please subscribe and so, you, so you know when all the new podcasts are coming out, all right? Follow us on IG at Ape Academy. And then we also have a backup page at Ape Academy Podcast, all right? We're on Twitter at A underscore defensive. We're on Facebook. <laughs> we're on everything, man. Ape Defensive Solutions. And we're on what? TikTok, TikTok. Ape Academy Pod, although the TikTok has not really picked up because I don't really get it. But maybe because I'm old. Who knows? All right, so today we're talking about the battle flag of segregation. And uh, the man who was the subject of the intro was Mr. Well, I should say Governor George Wallace, the governor of Alabama. All right. We're talking late 50s and into the 1960s. In January... 1963, 100 years after Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, a new governor was sworn into office in Montgomery, Alabama. Now, our sources are, for this podcast, for the entire series, was the Confederate flag, America's most embattled emblem by Mr. John M. Kosick, HistoryNet.com, the University of Virginia, my alma mater, History.com. All right. George Corley Wallace was quick to remind white Alabamians of their long-held 
bitter grievances against the North. And all these grievances, all these disagreements were really sown during Civil War and then after during Reconstruction. He promised, so he made a lot of campaign promises. Um, he really appealed to the fears of a lot of white Americans. And it's kind of sad, but that's what he had to do to get elected back then. He promised to never again let the Southern way of life be trampled on by the feds. Standing at his podium, Wallace raised his clenched fists and played to the emotions of his enthusiastic crowd. Listen to this. Today, I have stood where once Jefferson Davis stood and took an oath to my people. It is very appropriate that from this cradle of the Confederacy, this very heart of the great Anglo-Saxon Southland, that today we sound the drum for freedom as have our generation of forebears before us done time and again down through history. Let us rise to the call of freedom-loving blood that is in us and send our answer to the tyranny that clanks its chains upon the South. In the name of the greatest people that have ever trod this earth, I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny, and I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. All right, that was during his inauguration address in Montgomery, Alabama. 1963, not that long ago. It's it's really, really problematic that a man who held such strong racist views was the governor of a American state, but this was actually not uncommon in that era. Um, most Southern leaders, almost to a man, were staunch, segregationist they did not believe in integration which is you know the mixing of the races the the disillusion of that invisible line that both races could not cross most southern politicians were against any federal action to force them to bring the races together because what that would do is that would imply equality that would question the implied superiority of the white southern race and that my friends would shake the power structure of that society and that threatened everything that men like George Wallace stood for while delivering his speech Wallace stood at the podium flanked by a confederate battle flag right so we're talking about the St. Andrew's cross remember the red field, the blue diagonal cross with those stars in the middle of it. He was also flanked by the stars and stripes and the Alabama state flag. It's really ironic that he had the Ameri he had the nerve to put the American flag next to the Confederate battle flag. But actually, a lot of politicians in the South set up their podiums, their legislatures that way. Two years later, civil rights marchers completed a four-day journey from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama, intended to garner support for the passage of a Federal Voting Rights Act. As the marchers made their way along the highway of central Alabama, they were taunted by groups of young men with Confederate flags and flag-emblazoned clothing. 100 days exactly to the day after Lee's surrender, so General Lee surrendered at Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia to General Ulysses S. Grant, and 100 years to the day, Time Magazine, they carried a feature article on the Ku Klux Klan violence, and also they published a photo of Imperial Grand Wizard Robert Shelton of Tuscaloosa, Alabama, with guess what, his favorite symbol, the Confederate battle flag. So, the last few episodes, I've kind of been tracing the roots of the battle flag. I started way back during the Civil War. 
I talked about the various different battle flags of the units of the Confederate military. Then I talked about how they eventually developed a few different national flags for the Confederacy. Then we talk about post-war reconstruction, how the flag kind of reinvented itself. It went from, you know, just a a kind of a memento, kind of a nostalgic item just for Confederate veterans and their families that was really only taken out during very specific ceremonies. And then it transformed into kind of like a a counterpoint, like a counter symbol to the Stars and Stripes. It became a fad in the 1950s um, because in the 19, in the late 1940s, the Truman administration, they were starting to kind of think about equality. They were starting to make moves on racial equality. So lo and behold, as soon as they started doing that, all of a sudden everyone across America, not just in the South, in the North also, and the Midwest, and even California, they all wanted Confederate flags suddenly. Hmm, I wonder why. So that's what we've been doing. We've gotten to a point now where segregation is really, really threatened. And it's ironic that 100 years after General Lee surrendered, a major American publication like Time would publish a, a full-length article on the KKK, right, which we also talked about last episode. If you didn't catch it, definitely go back and tune in. It's a great episode. Um, Robert Shelton was perhaps the most famous Klan member at the time. He was the well, the Grand Wizard of the biggest chapter in America, in Tuscaloosa. And he was showing his favorite kind of knickknack, the Confederate flag. Events like these in the 1960s, especially the image of Shelton and other Klansmen posing with Confederate flags, it only strengthened the public image of the Confederate flag linking it to segregation and racism. But to be fair, now we gotta be fair. We can't just be one-sided. Flag supporters, even to this day, they complain that the connection between the KKK and this flag is grossly over-exaggerated by the media. And they actually do have a fair point. They really do. Because honestly, the KKK was not a real big factor at the time. And you know how the media is, right? They love a, a juicy story. They love controversy. They love kind of ruffling people's feathers. So, of course, they're going to portray a full-length feature article kind of inflaming passions, right? It is true that the news media has allowed the KKK and other hate groups to seize control of the battle flag's image, especially in the late 20th and for most of the 21st century. And their impact, you know, was not anywhere near what they claimed it to be, to be honest. I mean, the KKK, they definitely have influence and they definitely murdered a lot of people and terrorized thousands of people throughout the South. But as far as popular imagery, the KKK really stopped being a major factor in, uh, they stopped in like the 40s. They were really popular in the early 1900s. That's when they grew in popularity, but it slowly waned over the years for many, many uh, reasons mostly because of a lot of legal trouble and they're actually being targeted by the FBI. So they had trouble kind of keeping it together, but they had had these different resurgences. So at this point, the era we're talking about right now, we're talking 1950s, late 1950s into the 1960s. And this is the third generation of the Ku Klux Klan. So they actually had three revivals. Okay. This is the third one. Ron, Version 3.0. The KKK was not the only group of white Southerners to use the flag as a racist symbol in the 50s and 60s. Actually, regular, ordinary citizens protesting racial integration were the most common users of the battle flag. Many times, they carried nasty, inflammatory signs along with them to kind of go hand in hand with their flags. Their message was clear for everyone to see. George Wallace, of course, as a you know brilliant politician, he really was. I'm not going to lie. I listened to a lot of his speeches. He's a great speaker. He's a great debater. And he he knows how to like play both sides of something. Like He knows how to just, just take the edge off his racism just enough where you don't hate. Like you don't hate his guts. 
you're like, oh, well, I mean, he does have a point. But you're like, no, he's a racist. Like, that was his, <laughs> that was his, like, gift of gab, right? So what he did was he was really quick to take advantage of this common racist sentiment, right? He knew exactly what his white Alabamians wanted to hear, and he jumped all over it. He did this because he not only did he believe in it, obviously, but he also knew that it was to his political advantage, right? It definitely gave him a, a good advantage with his oratory skills, his debating skills, and also his kind of natural charisma. Um, he was able to jump on these fears and these this, these self-esteem issues and kind of blow them up way out of proportion. Wallace made the flag his symbol, not because the Klansmen loved it, but because the common white Alabamian felt connected to it. They felt a deep connection to it, especially as their way of life was being threatened more and more each day by the feds, by the evil feds. Civil rights leaders came to view the Confederate flag as a racist symbol because, quote, they encountered it in situations in which white people intended it as a symbol of racism. So let's just say the only time you see something is when you're about to get beat on, when you're about to get spit on, when you're about to get called a name. That's the only time you see a certain symbol. What are you going to start associating that symbol with? You're going to start associating, associating that symbol with whatever action follows it. So if every time I see Billy Joe Bob in Jebediah with a Confederate flag, and every time I see that flag, someone calls me a nigger, someone calls me a coon, someone calls me a darkie, and go back to Africa, guess what happens when I see that flag in 2021, in 2022, in 1980, in 1990? I'm going to be like, get that flag away from me. My grandfather, I saw it. My grandfather saw it. My uncle saw it. We don't want anything to do with it. So it's really important, even if you're a flag supporter, to understand that even though you may have a certain view of this flag, this flag was was adopted and used by bad actors, by bad people, and has come to symbolize a lot of bad things to a lot of good people. For example, let me explain. The late legendary Congress of Racial Equality leader, Mr. James Farmer, he saw the flag as a symbol of, quote, aggressive racist flag. Remember, I said that in the beginning, post-Civil War and during Reconstruction, really the only people who could use the Confederate flag were Confederate veterans and Confederate heritage organizations. Their main goal, their main focus was making sure that the reputation of the Confederacy was not drug through the mud was not stomped on like people didn't forget the common confederate soldier they didn't forget the dignity the honor that they fought with the bravery right that that wasn't lost but unfortunately over time when your flag starts to represent a certain movement that is even though it is connected to those soldiers it's a distant memory now that bravery that honor that chivalry is dead these segregationists, they don't have the uh, even the honor of the average lowly Confederate private in the Army of Northern Virginia. Even he has more chivalry and will treat black people better than the average white racist in Alabama during the 1960s, which is incredible to think about. The flag entered the dangerous realm of popular culture. Since then, it has always been used by racists who believe that its meaning is and always has been white supremacy. Now, for anyone listening who is in the uh, in any type of Confederate heritage organization, as a descendant of a veteran who has the flag hanging in their car or in their bedroom, and they're not racist, I understand. I understand how upsetting it is to hear something like that. All right, to hear that it's used by racists. But I'm sorry. Unfortunately, it was. And when people say it was used as a symbol of racism, that doesn't mean that every single person who who loves the flag is a racist. But unfortunately, there's two things that can be true at once in this situation. It can be true that many, many people who have the flag hanging in their garages, in their cars, in their bedrooms, truly love the Confederacy and love Civil War history and would never hurt a fly and might have black relatives, even black friends, might not have a racist bone in their body. But it's also true that that same flag that's hanging up in your garage 
was used by the KKK Imperial Wizards was marched in, in segregation supporting rallies was used, was draped over the shoulders of segregationists, of people who hung other human beings by the neck until they died. All right, so you have to acknowledge both things at the same time. You can't be living in a vacuum. Beginning with the Confederacy itself, every single time the racial order of the South has been challenged, guess what? Out comes the Confederate freaking battle flag. What a coinky dink. Defenders of the status quo have found the Confederate battle flag to be a powerful symbol of their opposition to change. Under pressure from Northern urban activists and African-American civil rights advocates within the Democratic Party, the federal government slowly began to challenge the South's rigid racial caste system beginning in the 1940s. Beginning in the 1940s, for the first time in history, now this is not a coincidence, the Confederate battle flag was officially associated with a major political movement, the state's rights party led by Mr. Strom Thurmond. Mr. Thurmond was intent on preserving the segregationist status quo. The 1940s also saw the first use of the Confederate flag officially in public by the Ku Klux Klan. Under significant pressure from the feds, however, the central KKK organization broke apart in 1944. So the big centralized KKK organization, the national organization, they're under too much heat, too much heat on these streets. They had to break up, right? However, the organization didn't just disappear, right? Hell no. What they did was they broke off into smaller, more localized chapters, and they still used the Klan's name. Under the leadership of Dr. Samuel Green of Atlanta, Georgia, the Klan enjoyed a brief revival beginning in, the, in late 1945. Unlike these earlier, these soft earlier versions of the Klan, <laughs> sorry guys, the new version used the Confederate flag openly and often. Green's Klan spread from Georgia into the surrounding states, and it was really, really popular in, guess who, and guess where, Alabama. One of the Klan's strangest leaders, Dr. Ligurgius Spinks, that's a cool name, Ligurgius? Yeah, Ligurgius. Ligurgius Spinks of Montgomery, Alabama, founder of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan of America, he made the Confederate flag a beloved personal symbol. Spinks took many pictures, hundreds of them, posing before the U.S. flag and dressed in weird, colorful robes of a self-proclaimed imperial emperor. <laughs> these nerds, I swear to God, these nerds, they always want to be like kings and emperors. So a lot of the uh, the imagery associated with, with clan leadership is kind of draped in this like fantasy, dragons, Cyclops, Nighthawks, like all like these mythical, powerful creatures, these these imperial emperors. It's always um, characters that have a lot of power and kind of mis uh, prestige and, and mythical abilities, right? That's kind of part of their their uh, their style. It's kind of strange, but I think that's what drew so many members to the organization. The, ideolo the ideology of the new 1940s-era Klan were made clear in a speech by Samuel Green at a naturalization ceremony in Tarrant, Alabama in April of 1949. Green explained that, quote, God segregated the races. There is no law that can be passed by Harry Truman or Congress or by the legislature of your state that can supersede the law of the Lord. The NAACP, they challenged the separate but equal segregation laws by demonstrating that separate means inferior schools and accommodations. The court agreed. The Supreme Court compelled states with segregation laws to spend more money on African-American facilities. A lot of the times, it would be separate, right, but equal on the books, but if you actually looked at the facilities, that black folks were forced to use, they were vastly uh, inferior to the white facilities. The state didn't care about maintaining African-American facilities. Are you serious? They're not going to spend a dime on that, right? 
remember, Plessy v. Ferguson said separate but equal is fine, right? The key word is equal. Once the NAACP was able to prove that this equality didn't exist, this started churning those wheels, right? Uh-oh, here we go. I can feel it, right? I can feel the wheels of progress turning because now those wheels are starting to clank in, in the justices' heads like, wait, hold on. If they're separate but not equal, then that means they might not be equal in anything else, right? They might not have equal protection on the law. They might not have equality in education. They might not have equality in job placement of employment. Now we go on and on down the entire list, but we had to start somewhere. And so what we did was the NAACP started with something non-threatening, right? Okay, let's just talk about facilities first, right? Tell you what, tell you what. Listen, judges, we're not trying to bite off more than we can chew. We're going to start with, hey, just make this bathroom a little bit cleaner, right? This trolley, it shouldn't be all run down. The seats shouldn't be cracked and ripped and dirty. Let's just clean them up a little bit, right? So that's how you start. You chip away. And the segregationists saw this. They knew that once one thing dropped, once one domino fell, all the dominoes would fall eventually. So they got real scared. And this is when the resistance really started, right? So while Southern liberals began to speak more openly and confidently of a South without segregation, conservatives began to realize that only by spending more money on black schools could they avert, avert a court-ordered end to segregation. So it forced them to start spending a little bit of money on black folks. The, black, the backlash to these 1940s-era court rulings was seen as a threat to the Southern way of life and ushered in a flag fad in the 1950s, a white popular culture fascination with old symbols of white supremacy and the old South. So as a, as a kind of reactionary thing to these 1940s, these late 1940s legal rulings, all of a sudden everyone, everyone wanted a Confederate flag, like I said earlier. It started a popular fad. Roy V. Harris, the editor of the Augusta Courier, did not mince words about his views of the Confederate flag. Quote, the Confederate flag is coming to mean something to everybody now. It means the Southern cause. It means the heartthrobs of the people of the South. It is becoming to be the symbol of the white race and the cause of the white people. The Confederate flag means segregation. That's a powerful freaking quote right there. That pretty much sums up a lot of people's attitude toward the flag. It's incredible how things have changed so quickly. It really is. It, every When I did my research for this, it was unbelievable how quickly everything changed. Um, but it took a while for it to start, but once it started, everything kind of fell down. All right, guys, we're going to take a quick musical interlude. We'll be back in a flash. Time to serenade you guys with the sounds of my boy Gucci Man and Lil Wayne. Hey. Dear Lord, oh Lord. Huh? Yeah. I'm rebellious and fearless. I laugh at failure. Dear Lord, oh Lord, please hear my prayer. I'm a prophet, a legend. I'm not begging. I'd rather die for my freedom than live like a peasant. Depressions, recessions, the past and the present. Slavery, the segregation. I still ride with my brethren. Take these shackles up above me. I'm street, but I'm godly. Know these white foes fear me, but nothing can stop me. I was destined to be this, so nothing amazed me. My best attribute is bravery. They think that I'm crazy. Yeah, it's Gucci. And if you're with me, then let's get to walking. Cause I'm sick or tired of. Everyone doing nothing but talking. Yeah. All right, y'all, we're back. We're back. Gucci, that's my boy Gucci. All right, <laughs> we're back. I just switched it up, man. That song in the beginning was really sad. I figured I joint you guys. Joint is that a word? Jolt, jolt you guys with some energy. It's almost Black History Month. Yes. So this is the last episode before Black History Month. It's a great. It's actually a perfect kind of lead-in 
to what we're going to be discussing all month. And we're going to tie in all this stuff. Um, you know, the civil rights movement, obviously everyone knows about it, right? Well, you better know about it after all these podcasts that I just did. Uh, we're going to talk, obviously, more about the civil rights movement. So this story is never going to really completely just disappear from our podcast. We're going to be talking about it off and on. So just this is not the last you're here. You're here. You're here about the uh, Confederate flag. All right. All right. Brown v. Board of Education. The spark that really ignited segregationist resistance at every level of Southern white society was a 1954 U.S. Supreme Court decision in Brown v. Board of Education, Topeka, Kansas. On May 17, 1954, dubbed, quote, Black Monday by segregationists, the U.S. Supreme Court unanimously, that means every single person, ruled that separate but equal schools for white and black students violated the U.S. Constitution. One year later, the Supreme Court directed the lower courts to desegregate public schools, quote, with all deliberate speed. The Brown decision forced a speedy change to the entire Southern educational system and unleashed a massive backlash. Whew. An angry, often violent campaign to preserve legalized segregation. So all of a sudden, white parents, their world was turned upside down. Suddenly, the people they couldn't stand that they stayed away from, that walked on the other, other side of the street, that shopped at different grocery stores, that couldn't eat in their restaurants, all of a sudden, they're going to school with us? With my kids? Man, if one of them black boys look at my white daughter, it's over, right? So these parents are like, you talk about angry, incensed, right? And a lot of it had to do with fear and ignorance. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. The Confederate battle flag was a favorite symbol in the hands of folks fighting to maintain the old order. All Southern political leaders announced their intention to fight and circumvent the integration of public schools, a stance commonly known as massive resistance. In the same session of the Georgia legislature, in the same, in the, in the same session where they passed a massive resistance plan, they also incorporated the Confederate battle flag into their new state flag. What a coincidence. Definitely done on purpose. Defenders of the flag in the 90s have argued that there is no smoking gun connection between the two events. Historians have shown that the flag was a symbolic image of resistance to the new integration federal laws. During the height of the civil rights movement in the 1950s and the 1960s, the battle flag became the opposing symbol to the stars and stripes. So if you wanted in the 1950s and 60s to protest against the U.S. government, guess what flag you flew? The Confederate flag. If you wanted to, quote, stand up for states' rights and the little guy and, and private property, I, I listened to a speech today from George Wallace that was made in 1964, I think it was 64 or 63, on, at UCLA, and he was talking about, he was just railing on the, the uh, Civil Rights Bill for all these reasons, right? Basically, he was saying, Integration is an attack on private property. It's an attack on the rights of individuals to determine, you know, their, what they want to do with their lives, right? He was just going on and on and on. He was calling the leaders of the civil rights movement Marxists and communists. I was like, man, this guy really does not want to be around some black folks. It's, it's really sad. You might actually like us. And one of his arguments was, you know, you know what? I don't understand why you guys want to change what we got going down here in Alabama. The Negroes, are, they have great schools. You know, I have a bunch of Negro f people that I call my friends. They have great schools. We have Negro presidents of colleges. They have their own educational institu uh, institutes. They're doing well. They got good test scores. A lot of them are employed. You know, they have their, their own houses, their own cars. I just don't see why you guys want to come down here and, sh and just turn our society on its head. Shake us up. I don't get it. It's like you guys just want to stomp on our necks. We're doing fine without you. That was his stance. And that was the stance of a lot of white Southerners. And when it came down to it, it was just pure racist. Like, they just didn't want to be around black people. That I mean, they can say whatever they want, right? He, Wallace, and he spoke. He was eloquent. He had solid arguments. 
right? He tried to tie it into history and tie it into legal theory and all this stuff. But in the end, at the end of the day, it still comes down to the same thing, fear, fear and racism. They want to keep black people in their place and they want to keep white folks elevated. And there's no argument that that he could make even back in 1964 that could disguise that, right? Identifying themselves with the American ideals of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, civil rights leaders, though, civil rights advocates, they marched with the stars and stripes held high. So to counter the Confederate flags on the other side, the civil rights leaders took the high road as usual, and they, and they, uh, they flew there proudly, their American flags. Segregationists often played into the hands of civil rights leaders by jeering at them and taunting them, with Confederate flags. So they're playing right into their hands. Like, see, see, look at that flag. See, we told you that that flag is inappropriate. We told you guys to take that flag down. We told you that all it would do was would incite the racist, bigoted, ignorant people of the South. And that's what it's doing. Because every time we show up peaceful, nonviolent, not harming nobody, marching down the street, singing hymns, they want to come out with their guns, their dogs, and their Confederate flags. It just doesn't equal up. It doesn't match up. The energy is not equal. Confederate heritage organizations and the third rising of the Ku Klux Klan. All right. Heritage organizations did not advocate use of the battle flag as a symbol of defiance. But leaders of the Sons of Confederate Veterans definitely sympathized with the fight against integration and even attempted to align the organization with the anti-integration cause. Hately Norton Mason, adjutant general of the SVC, SCV, SCV in the early 1950s warned of groups, quote, working to destroy the South and to some extent aimed at destroying the white race in America. Then they take over. So Mr. Mason, he was really scared of the white race somehow being destroyed. I'm not sure how integration would destroy the white race. What they were really afraid of is interracial mixing of marriage and having interracial babies and diluting the, the pure blood that they thought they had. Politicians like John D. Long from South Carolina, the man responsible for introducing the battle flag into both the House of Representatives and the state Senate chambers, proposed a resolution declaring the assembly's, quote, allegiance to established white supremacy as now prevailing in the South and pledging our lives and our sacred honor to maintain it, whatever the cost in war and in peace. Long reminded his fellow senators in May of 1961 that ever since the end of the Civil War, quote, the North has never ceased to carry on and wage unrelenting black war against the South and the white people of the South seeking to destroy our way of life. After the Brown decision, the Klan rose again like a cockroach that just won't die. They came back strong, especially in Alabama, where violence and intimidation of blacks was on the rapid rise. A wave of Klan bombings gave this capital city the dark nickname Bombingham. This was before the church bombing that killed four young schoolgirls, African-American schoolgirls, I should add. Of course, Ku Klux Klan rallies at that time were held under the watchful eye of the Confederate battle flag. In fact, the Imperial Wizard of the Gulf Ku Klux Klan in Mobile, Alabama, he owned a gigantic gun store in the city and it was decorated with, gig- with just a ginormous Confederate flag on the wall. So he had a, gin- a ginormous gun store decorated with a gigantic Confederate flag. The leader of the Klan in Birmingham called his group the original Ku Klux Klan of the Confederacy. The Klan leader most associated with the flag, however, was Robert Shelton, a tire salesman by day, imperial wizard of the United Clans of America, Knights of the Ku Klux Klan by night in 1961. Klan leadership under Shelton insisted that the flag stood for racial purity. If only extremists had used the flag as a racist symbol, it would be possible, right? Now, any logical person could think like this. Say if only the most extreme redneck racist hillbillies used the flag as a, as a, as a symbol, right? 
it would be possible for us to say, you know what, man, it's not really a racist symbol. It's just a bunch of extremists using it, right? We can kind of play that off. No big deal. But that's the problem. It wasn't just them. It was used by a wider audience. It was just a bunch of ordinary people for the most part. And that's the most disturbing part about this whole story, about this whole history, this whole time period, is that you would think that, you know, there's no way that, like, all these people think like this. It's just a bunch of racist rednecks who are losers who have no life, right, in the KKK. No. It was like the normal school people, you know, school children, uh, school teachers, mechanics, accountants, attorneys, just normal people, laborers who came out in masses, in huge numbers, thousands of people came out waving Confederate flags, chanting racial slurs, screaming, spitting, throwing things at, at young kids. Most of these kids, most of these, you know, these civil rights advocates were kids, college kids. My, my daughter's age, my daughter's 20 years old. Kids hurt. I can't imagine someone dumping something on Kiana or throwing something in her face or calling her the N-word. Like, I would be ready to go down there and hurt somebody. I can't imagine what these parents felt like. It's, it's really heartbreaking. Um, it's interesting. It's heartbreaking. It's disturbing. There's a lot of things. Eyewitness accounts and photographic evidence suggest that the flag was present at most rallies and most civil rights marches. So they were, they were, they were everywhere, okay? The flag was all over the place. And that was the problem. That was the problem anyone defending the flag had was that it was all over the, the damn place. And they really couldn't defend it. It was hard to defend something where it's beginning to be used and hijacked by bad actors. Often, a few people, sometimes known troublemakers and rabble-rousers, now every single town's got these folks, and you know who they are. They always cause trouble. They always cause a fuss. They go out to every protest. You know, they're always trying to destroy property, loot, riot. There's always just a bunch of troublemakers in every city. Most of the, a lot of the time, they were the ones who were responsible for bringing the flags to these protests. However, a overwhelming majority of the time, the masses of white segregationists wielded flags on their own accord. No one told them to bring a bunch of flags. It was completely voluntary. So you would think, you know, you know, it's just a bunch of troublemakers who were bringing it. And yeah, a few times it was a bunch of troublemakers. But for most of these, of these mass resistance demonstrations, they were just regular folks, regular townspeople bringing flags. No one told them to bring Confederate flags. If they would have done this in the night in the 1870s or early 1900s, it would have been unthinkable. They would have been shunned. They would have been driven out of the town by carrying a Confederate flag at a rally like that. But things change really fast. John Kostick writes, quote, It is possible that eyewitness accounts and photographic evidence might well have underrepresented the flag's presence as a symbol of protest, precisely because it had become so commonplace that it did not even warrant attention anymore, right? It was, the Confederate flag was flown so many times at these mass resistance gatherings that it was like people didn't even care anymore. Like, yo, there it is again. Like, no one was like, that's a Confederate flag. That's a Confederate flag. That's a Confederate flag. No, it was like every, it was like seeing a Texas flag in Houston, Texas. It's everywhere. The stars and stripes were also a common symbol for segregationists. From Klansmen to common folk, to politicians alike. For instance, George Wallace, they all used it during the civil rights era. More often than not, segregationists used both flags together, sending a clear message that they believe segregation to be consistent with both Southern and more importantly, American values. That's the catch. That's the kicker right there. It's not just the South. The reason why they made sure they used the American flag as well is because they're saying, look, this is our flag in the South, but guess what? This flag represents this flag, the Stars and Stripes also. These values, these Southern values are actually deep down, and y'all Yankees know it. You feel the same way you do. In fact, a lot of you Yankees treat your black people worse than we do. So I know you really believe that this is your flag also. Let's talk about some educational battlegrounds, and we're going to talk about this a lot this month. So don't worry, this won't be the last time we talk about it. Educational back, uh, battlegrounds. The main battlegrounds for these clashes of ideals and values 
were public schools and universities. Handfuls of African-American kids applied for admission into previously segregated schools. The white power structure threw obstacles in their path, both legally and administratively. All the while, the white community en masse staged widespread demonstrations. One of the first battles took place at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa in February 1956 when Altherine Lucy arrived to begin classes. Lucy was scheduled to begin classes on February 3rd. The school's agreement with the enrollment enraged segregationists, so they agreed to abide by the federal order, and this really pissed people off. At midnight, a large crowd estimated to number as many as 1,200 marched behind a group of students carrying a Confederate flag from campus to a flagpole in downtown Tuscaloosa, all the while singing Dixie and chanting, Keep Bama White and to hell with Lucy. At the flagpole, the wild crowd listened to an inflammatory speech from student leader Leonard Wilson, a bitter racist and member of the Selma Citizens Council. Wilson displayed a battle flag in his dorm room and used the flag as a personal symbol during his angry, short tenure at the University of Alabama. Led by Wilson, the crowd once again went searching for Lucy the next day, finding that she wasn't on campus. They confronted President Oliver Carmichael. Finally, after another rowdy protest, the Board of Trustees suspended Lucy for her own protection and also expelled Wilson, who was a racist student. Segregationists carried Confederate flags and many other confrontations over school integration as well. In New Orleans in 1960, Atlanta in 1962, Little Rock in 1959, and Birmingham in 1963. The desegregation crisis in Birmingham occurred in two waves. First, court orders to integrate two high schools in September of 1957 brought out massive crowds of white protesters. At Woodlaw, students raised two Confederate flags on the school's flagpoles, displaying a sign reading, stay out niggers, and, ye and yelled, no Negroes will get by us. Six years later, at Graymont Elementary School and West End High School, there was even more bitter resistance, led by encouragement to fight back by Governor George Wallace. The crowd jeered, clapped, and waved Confederate flags and chanted, go home nigger, go home nigger, hit them back, hit them back. Harder, harder, and two, four, six, eight. Who do we appreciate? Wallace, Wallace, Wallace. The most historically significant civil rights incident for which Confederate flags became a symbol was the 1962 integration of the University of Mississippi, Ole Miss, by one of my personal heroes, James Meredith. Unusual even for the proud Dixie Channing, Old South remembering racist school like Ole Miss, Battle flags hung from dormitory windows and cars while crowds chanted, We want Meredith, get a rope. Whenever a Confederate flag appeared, the students broke out into cheers. Despite a chaotic night of clashes between the students and federal marshals, resulting in two deaths, James Meredith eventually registered for classes as scheduled. So let's briefly talk about Governor George Wallace. George Wallace was sworn into office as governor of Alabama in January of 1963. He symbolically placed himself where Jefferson Davis accepted the Confederate presidency in February of 1861. Wallace loved linking his stand against federal mandated integration with the Confederacy's interference with slavery. The battle flag to him was an unofficial campaign symbol during his election campaign. In the flag... In the, the battle flag stood prominently behind his desk in the governor's mansion and appeared in many official portraits and photos. Wallace was very consistent in his defense of the battle flag as linked to his state's rights stance. I love the Confederate flag. I love the Alabama flag as much as I love the American flag. That's a quote from George freaking Wallace. All right. Now. Real quick before I end it today, because we're, let's see, let's check our time a little bit, guys. What we got, what we got. 
All right, we got 55 minutes. All right, good, good. Okay, so to finish up today's podcast, I really want to talk about some some of the positions of some folks who still had that old school um, idea of what the Confederate flag stood for. And although their concerns and their beliefs and their stance is valid, what they fail to understand is that although maybe the Confederate flag stood for something in the beginning, stood for, for bravery, like I said before, for chivalry, for honor, for duty, it really turned dark. I mean, the, it's a really blood-soaked dark flag. I mean, I don't care what anyone says. If you look at the history, it is what it is, right? Okay, so Alabama's Klan-fighting attorney general... Mr. Richmond Flowers wrote in Look Magazine in 1966, and I feel bad for him when he wrote this, quote, Today, the flag for which my grandfather fought is desecrated. The stars and bars should be a thing of honor, instead flaunted by races whose forebearers may never have served under it, and has come to mean one thing, hate. Our Confederate ancestors would be spinning in their graves if they saw their flags in the hands of those who trample upon everything they fall for. It deserves a better place in history than on car bumpers or on the bloody robes of the killers, floggers, and night riders who call themselves the Ku Klux Klan. Man. All right, let's talk a little bit more. Here's another quote. Another newspaper editor wrote, quote, true Southerners disapproved of seeing the Confederate flag, quote, draped into today's interracial controversies where it is almost invariably made to seem synonymous with bigotry or racism. The Confederate flag should not be used today except in connection with dignified Confederate observances and anniversaries, such as Confederate parades or as a decoration for Confederate monuments. I mean, yeah. I'm going to end with this quote from Mr. Cossack. Quote, The flag's later-day association with racial controversy has had more to do with a change in its relationship to society than with a change in its inherent symbolic meaning. Before World War II, the flag was a symbol of an established, explicitly white supremacist social order in the South that enjoyed the tacit support of the federal government. After the fight over civil rights was joined, the flag became in some hands a belligerent symbol of an order under attack by the federal government. In circumstances and in attitude, there is a fundamental difference between a symbol of the status quo and a symbol of protest. It was the circumstances of protest that called forth quote, slack-jawed juveniles to flaunt flags and heckle civil rights marchers on the road to Montgomery. The flag's previous immunity to racial, racial controversy relied on a consensus belief that the flag represented the soldierly valor of Confederate soldiers, which everyone could respect. This was an artificial consensus rooted in an explicitly white supremacist order in the South and its toleration by the rest of the nation. Once that order began to crumble and the toleration ended, so too did the flag exemption from racial controversy. Once that veil was torn up and the true face of what that flag stood for was revealed, everything crumbled around him. God bless you guys. I hope you enjoyed this Confederate flag series, we are going to continue with it because it's really interwoven in the story of the civil rights movement in general. I just want to say I can't wait to, to tackle this next month. You guys have been amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in. God bless you guys. I hope you learned something. I hope you learned as much as I did. God bless America. Ape. I've been working all day. Till the sun go down Back her feet hurt But I still got to work Who gonna save me? Mm -hmm.
them in the mall. Only way to fend them off, leave them sitting at death's door. Proper way to send them off.